First Responder Friday is a production of Conjo Studios and is sponsored by PTSD 911 Movie. Learn more at PTSD911Movie.com. Welcome to First Responder Friday. My name is Conrad Weaver. I am so glad you have joined us on this Friday. Whether you are watching live, if you're watching live, obviously you're on Facebook or Twitter or on YouTube. And if you could just let us know in the comments where you're from, maybe if you're a part of a first responder agency, uh, let us know what type of agency you work for. That'd be awesome to let us kind of give us a little insight as to who's watching. And if you're listening to this on, on the podcast, you obviously can't see us, but I encourage you to also join us on the live shows every Friday right here on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And uh, so I'm so glad that you have decided to stop by and check out what we're doing. If you uh, want more information about our movie that we're producing, go to PTSD911movie.com. You can learn all everything you need to know about our film and learn about what we are doing. Well, I, first of all, I am not a first responder, but I'm a friend of first responders. And I bring first responder leaders from around the country here to this show each week to talk about the issues that are facing our first responder community. And today we have a very special guest, Patrick Welsh. He's an author, a speaker, a trainer, and an expert witness. He has a distinguished career, a 26-year career with the Dayton, Ohio Police Department, and he rose through the ranks from, from a patrol officer to sergeant to lieutenant, through the narcotics and central investigations as a commander, and finished his career as a major of the West Patrol operations. And today he lives in Colorado, and I'm so jealous that Pat lives in Colorado because I love it out there. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Conrad. Glad to be here. So, uh, what made you decide to move to Colorado from Ohio? <laughs> no, well, for starters, there's no humidity out here to speak of, <laughs> and uh, and blue skies 300 days a year instead of gray skies like uh, in the Midwest. Uh, and uh, you know, and as always, family. We have a, a daughter and son-in-law and a granddaughter that live up in the mountains who came out here before we did, and. Uh, and then uh, another daughter has, and son-in-law, they followed us here. So we're, uh, we're not native Coloradans, but we're, we're very well entrenched in here. Well, well eight I, years I, now. I, I lived out there for a couple of years and just really fell in love with it and, uh, would love to go back at some point. So, but right now I'm in Maryland, so, uh, we'll deal with that, uh, at a later time. So tell me what got you involved in law enforcement? How'd you, I mean, you have kind of a, a different path into law enforcement. Yeah. Very different path. Uh, in, for people watching and listening, I was actually an assistant district attorney who became a cop. And uh, so I had prosecuted everything from jaywalking to uh, murder and uh, and did that for four years. And one day my wife's like, you really don't seem to be very happy. What's going on? And I said, I don't like practicing law. And I don't like, uh, and she goes, what do you want to do? I said, what I've wanted to do since I was nine, nine, 10 years old is I want to be a police officer. So we'd been married six years, uh, had, a, had uh, two children uh, by that point, or no, three. And uh, she said, uh, well, then go do it. So I took the test and worked my way up uh, through the ranks and had a 26 year career. That was a big change from uh, a legal office on the prosecuting side or on the, you know, that side to uh, being on the streets. What was the biggest, uh, what was the biggest surprise for you? 
Um, the biggest surprise would probably, uh, well, first of all, I ended up on midnights. I spent half my career, uh, as a patrolman, as a sergeant, and, and even as a watch commander, 13 years uh, on midnights. Uh, so that was probably the biggest surprise was, uh, seeing life after midnight in a major urban environment. And it is a completely different world than the nine to five life. Mm. So yeah. that was, that was an eye opener. You know, it's kind of like, you know, my wife's been in education for man almost 25, 30 years. And, and, you know, during the COVID time, sometimes we'd be out, you know, in town and she's like, people are actually like out doing stuff during the day, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know? she's, she's always in the classroom or in the school, you know, and doesn't yeah. realize that life goes on outside of this. So I'm sure it's the same way with, uh, you know, in, in law enforcement stuff happens at, at night, right? Yeah. Well, when, when I had enough seniority at one point, I was working eight at night to six in the morning as a sergeant. And I had enough seniority to go to days and work uh, you know, 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. I lasted three weeks mm. of doing that. And and I asked the guy, the sergeant on midnights who had no seniority, I said, will you trade with me so I can go back to go back at nights? Because I, I just could not take the daytime, the traffic and and, and just it was terrible. Three three weeks into it, I told my wife, I said, I'm going back to midnights. So in so, your time, your 26 years in law enforcement, what did you learn about leadership? Well, I learned uh, what bad leadership was rather quickly. Um, at over 26 years, um, and, th- and this isn't terribly unique, the, the life expectancy of a police chief in law enforcement with an agency is about three to five years. <clears throat> so, uh, we had chiefs that only were there 18 months to two years. And is that because so altogether, they're, they're oftentimes in cities, they're being, being put in by new mayors or new administrations in the city. Is that why there's a, there's a turnover it, there? There's so many different reasons. Um, and so altogether between chiefs and acting chiefs, uh, I went through eight, chiefs or acting chiefs in 26 years. So one of the things I learned about leadership, uh, a big thing is uh, succession planning hmm. uh, and continuity, because every time a new chief came in, then uh, they would bring people in from the outside. They didn't know anybody from the, you know, within the ranks and trying to develop the connectivity and relationship building. Uh, because we were a collective bargaining um, Mm -hmm. state. So there was just a whole lot of things. And and I guess probably the number one, and I actually uh, laminated this and put it on my door, is uh, I I found um, my my foundation, my motto, if you will, is uh, are you doing the right thing at the right time, the right way for the right reasons? And that kind of became my guidepost so that when, when I was a sergeant, as I was coming up through the ranks uh, and somebody that was working, that I had a position of influence because of having bar stars stripes. um, I learned from a leadership perspective, 
I can't do your job for you. Uh, so if you were, if I was a sergeant and you were a field training officer and you came to me and go, Hey boss, uh, I'm having trouble with my rookie. They want me to give them the answers. And, mm. and I learned the leadership way of, of doing that is to actually challenge them. Well, what do you think is the right thing to do? How should it be? What's the right way to do it? When's the right time to do it? And why are you doing it? What are the reasons? Because you can do the right thing at the wrong time and it's going to blow up in your face. Or you can do the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And the message delivered isn't the message received uh, because you're doing it for the wrong reasons and you're doing it. So it's those were probably that's probably the and I'm in my 60s. The best thing I ever learned about leadership over the last 60 years or, you know, 40 plus years of my adult life are to ask those four questions. So as was that, uh, was your experience in law enforcement and seeing how leadership works kind of a motivation for you to really hone that skill in you and, and the training then what, which, which is what you do today? Uh, definitely for the training I do today, because uh, I I had seen some of the worst um, in leadership, and I was on I was on the receiving end of some very uh, toxic treatment by people in positions of authority, and uh, and and I know what that feels like, and, and I know what it does to you physically, emotionally. Uh, what it does to your family. And, and so that's why I became a student, but it's not just a student of, of, uh, leadership from, and we talk, you know, offline. Uh, I went through John Maxwell's certification program and, and I've taken some other stuff. Uh, but I'm a huge student of Sun Tzu and the art of war, uh, because of the principles uh, that coincide with those four questions that I ask. Uh, Sun Tzu called it different things, the way, the weather. Uh, uh, he, he had different terms for it, but he was talking about the same principles. And I have found, like, when I taught a bunch of security forces personnel at uh, Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, and, and I taught, I was there for a week, and I think it was somewhere, somewhere in the vicinity of 400 cops over a period of those five days. So a whole flight, 80 people at a time, five days. And the best evaluation I got, and I was there to te teach them about leadership. The best evaluation I got said this, you've given me the tools to help save my marriage. Mm -hmm. So the, the principles of leadership are applicable not just in the police department or not in your fortune 500 company, but in your family, um, those, those same principles are what creates success in your family. Mm. That's, uh, that's really important because I think, you know, all of us are, have leadership responsibilities in one way or another, whether it's in our family, whether it's on our job, whether it's in our, in our church or our local community, you know, we all have, that those opportunities. And if we screw up on any of those, you know, it's going to mess up the, the relationships that we have. And I think that's, I think if we right. learn those leadership principles, like you said, I think it, it, it applies to everything, right? 
Well, it does. And, and you know, John Maxwell, I, everybody, there's a gazillion definitions of leadership out there. Or if you ask people, how do you define leadership? They, they will start uh, <clears throat> giving you, uh, you know, uh, lead from the front. Uh, you know, and, and they give you examples of a style of leadership, but they don't know what what is leadership. And I think Maxwell said it most succinctly. Leadership is influence. Hmm. Nothing more, nothing less. So you, if you are a person of influence in somebody else's life, in their eyes, you're a leader. And so you have to build on that. And, and then there's other aspects to leadership. And, and we were, you and I were talking about it, you know, before we started the show, but, uh, my, my tagline, if you want to call it that is you have to have a warrior servant leader mindset. It's three parts of one person and you have to have those mindsets at home, at, at, in your neighborhood, at work, in your faith life, and, uh, it, all that, you can't separate it. They're, mm. they're intertwined like this. And it's not just about leadership. <clears throat> uh, that's, that's one part. Um, and probably not a first responder, but in my lifetime, the person that I would say defined the best uh, the warrior servant leader mindset is uh, now St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa. Mm. Uh, if you if you read and study her, you can see the different applications of that mindset and uh, was the most humble person mm. in the world, right. I think. Right. So in some of your documentation, uh, I found that you say you help law enforcement professionals protect with courage, serve with humility, and lead with compassion. So why is that important in law enforcement? Well, you know, cops are really, really good about protect and serve. That kind of the, at least the jargon, and they put it on their cruisers and all that kind of stuff. And, and what I... When I say you have to have a warrior mindset, a lot of people don't understand. They they think um, that that's uh, in fact a lot of places are politicians and whatnot are saying you know you need to lose the warrior mindset. No, you don't. If you understand what it means to be a warrior, and when I say you know you the protect part is here's what a warrior is. It's this simple. You stand up, show up, and defend what you believe. Hmm. That, that's what a warrior does. Stand up, show up, and defend what you believe. It can be your family. It can be your faith. It can be your values. It can be your community. So when you're putting on the uniform, you are standing up, showing up, and defending the least, the last, the lost, the victims uh, that you come across, and you're defending the rule of law, all of those things. But you have to do it in a way is uh, you're not punching people in the mouth kind of. To, to, you can't be arrogant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't bulldog. There's a time that you have to have that command presence uh, in a situation. Uh, but at the same time, you have to defend what your core values are and what the values of your department 
in your city or what, who, you know, what, whoever is signing your paycheck, what's the mission and vision statements of your agency? If you don't know them, you can't defend them. And so when that's part of having that protect mindset, that warrior mindset is uh, you have to know what you're defending and what you're protecting. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have to, a servant is putting the wants and needs of others before yourself. Just ask any parent, you know, you, you get that one down pretty quick <laughs> when the baby's crying. But, uh, and we do it with our kids, you know, as we raise them, we put their wants and needs ahead of our own. And for police officers, that serve part of protect and serve is uh, they have to have that humility that, and I would tell this to officers that work for me, that, um, when I was a downtown commander, you see somebody drinking out of a paper bag. That's no big deal to you, but it is a big deal to my mom when she's downtown shopping. And so, um, you have to serve with humility and get rid of that ego or get rid of that mindset of, uh, um, you're going to do it to you. I have a badge. I'm the police and you're not. Uh, kind of deal. And that's one of the biggest problems cops have is we are so used um, to giving orders that we forget how to connect and communicate with people. We, we start giving our spouses orders. We start giving our kids orders and we can't shut off and we want compliance. And if, if we, you don't comply, there's consequences. And when we get that kind of mindset going, that's how we lose the humility that we're no longer serving people. We're bossing people around and that's not our job. And then the leadership, the leadership part of it then is, uh, you never know. Let me tell you a real quick story that kind of emphasizes all this. So I was a patrolman working midnights and it was about two o'clock in the morning. I get sent on a call of a return missing juvenile, a 12 year old boy had come home. He didn't come home from school. Parents reported him missing two o'clock that night. He comes back home. So it's uh, in a very, very uh, violent neighborhood, uh, all African-American neighborhood. And I get the call to go take the paperwork on this. So it's like, Hey, the bars are getting ready to close, you know, and all the stuff, you know, the fun stuff is going to start happening. And I'm taking a report on a return missing. So, so I get there and I, I was initially, I was shocked how well kept the yard was. I mean, the, the, re- the rest of the neighborhood looked like third world. So I, you know, knock on the door and both mom and dad answered the door. And this was typically uh, a neighborhood that um, was all single parent uh, households. So they invite me in. The house is impeccable. Another kind of unusual. And they explained to me that uh, they're, uh, they, they both have jobs. Uh, they send their son to private school. So he's not, not in the public school. So they're sacrificing finances. But he's running with the wrong crowd. And now he pulled this stunt of not coming home after school and they just don't know what to do. 
And I said, well, I, he is home. Yes. Is he okay? Yes. Because I need that for my report. And that's all I had to do is confirm that. Hmm. And then mom goes, will you talk to him? Because we don't know what else to do. And I said, absolutely. Now, putting the wants and needs of other, I wanted to go out and do police work, you know? So they call the young man in, 12 years old. And uh, and I told him, I said, let me talk to him, just me. And I, I don't want you guys there. Just let me talk to him. They go, fine. So he sat down, never made eye contact with me, never said a word. And I wasn't with him 10 minutes. But I didn't talk to him like a cop. I talked to him like a parent. And I'm sure I didn't say anything that his parents hadn't already said to him. And then I left. 18 years later, I'm standing in line at a Kroger's off duty, minding my own business, girls ringing up my purchases. There's a little old lady in line behind me and then some people behind her. And there's this guy, he's about six foot two, black male, goes, hey, Welsh, is that you? And I kind of you know, did a little look because normally people don't call you by your last name. Mm -hmm. And I didn't recognize him. And I said, uh, yes, it is. May I ask who you are? And he goes, you probably don't remember me. I said, no, sir, I don't. He goes, uh, when I was 12 years old, you came to my house because I'd run away, I had run away from home. I just want to tell you I graduated college, I'm married, I have two children, and thank you. Mm. So when I talk about the protecting and serving and leading mindset, you have no idea how you're going to impact somebody's life by what you say, how you say it, what you do or don't do, and how you treat people. And that is, we lose that in law enforcement for a lot of reasons. They're excuses, but they're their reasons. And that's why I train the way I do and why I do it mm -hmm. is to change that culture uh, in law enforcement, which will also impact the culture of your community. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that's maybe the underlying, maybe one of the underlying things that's happening today in what we're seeing in on the news that, the, oh, I, that the law yeah. enforcement has lost some of that, that uh, really caring and compassion and serving with humility ideals. That, that's part of it. There's more to it than that. Sure. Um, there's when you get into law enforcement, 99% of everybody that wants to be a cop in an interview, the oral interview uh, process, they'll go, you'll be asked, why do you want to be a police officer? And 99% of us all say the same thing. We want to get back to the community or some form. We want to help. And there's a uh, an idealism of, of being a police officer is altruistic. It's something greater than, than yourself. And that's what drives you to want to go into law enforcement, 99% of us. And, in, and then you go through the academy. It's very rigid. You know, it's very structured. And you're learning all the laws. And, and then you come out. And in your first one to three years, you're working on finding your niche. What, what do you really like? What are you competent? You know, some guys and gals, they, they love traffic. Me, it was, it was all about, you know, guns and drugs and 
in the violence uh, because of where I was, the, the uh, districts I worked in. And slowly we start developing an us versus them attitude. Mm -hmm. And, and an attitude is, is defined as a, a, a settled way of thinking. And by years five and seven, we don't even have any friends anymore that aren't cops. Mm -hmm. We surround ourselves, you know, we only associate with other cops. Mm -hmm. And I mean, literally, we, I, our one street, our street was only two blocks long. Our one block had 11 houses. Seven of us were cops. Hmm. Uh, and so we, we start circling the wagons and then there's all, all these influences, you know, be it the media, be it, um, civic leaders, whatever is suddenly we're no longer the good guys. We're always being talked about or treated as the bad guys. Well, that starts influencing your mindset and, and you do lose, uh, I don't want to say, uh, you lose touch with, um, the humanity of policing and, um, that you're no longer, uh, touched by, I mean, most cops, I've been on hundreds of homicides. Um, and unless it was an infant or a small child, it's, you just shut it out and you don't, um, you don't let it get to you, but then you start shutting out your family, you know, divorces start picking up year seven, eight, nine, uh, the alcohol use or abuse and other issues, anger management, all these things start building up because we don't feel we have an outlet uh, to share that. And, and you're not going to share it with any other cops because then you're going to be like, oh, you're, you know, you really probably ought to find another job kind of deal. It's suck it up buttercup kind of mm -hmm. mentality. So all those influences go into uh, taking away that, um, that humanness, that humility, um, that servant mindset, unless you try intentionally uh, address it and deal with it. Mm -hmm. How much of, of, uh these kind of issues that, and, and kind of those cycles that you, you, you described, how much of that is just as a, a result of just normal police work or how much of it is influenced or as, is a result of poor leadership? It, it's a combination of both. And it's not just unique to, to law enforcement. You see it in marriages. Um, when, when reality collides with what your idealism was, what you thought marriage was going to be, what you thought policing was going to be, or you get your degree in engineering or you go to law school <laughs> and then you come out and you go, well, this isn't what I expected. Uh, and that's when you get the, it's called disillusionment. You, you start getting disillusioned about the choices that you've made. So part of it is internal. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is external, the leadership standpoint, because if you're working in a leadership, a command structure that has um, the mentality of just do your job and don't cause me any problems, that's not, that's their leadership style. Uh, then 
it shuts you down from being able to get the help that you need when you're struggling. And, and we, there isn't a cop around that hasn't struggled with all these issues. It's just how you have handled them. And, and so the, the, the PTSD, uh, the, uh, anger management, the, uh, you get this, the complaints, uh, you know, that the officer's rude, the excessive use of force, all those are behaviors that are giving you a clue that their attitude is uh, out of whack with the mission and vision of the agency. And there are some people that in law enforcement absolutely have no business being in law enforcement um, for a number of reasons. But if you have leadership that, that doesn't step up and deal with it, then it only escalates and gets worse. Mm -hmm. And, and then you could have a leader that, you know, I call it the favorite son uh, leader, you know, that if they have favorites and you're not one of them, then that impacts Mm -hmm. your mindset at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then how, you know, people say, uh, don't bring work home and don't bring home to work. Mm -hmm. That's not physically possible. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't do that. If you if you can, then you need professional psychological help because you you got a split person. It is impossible not to have your home life affect work life and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It, so you have to learn how to deal with it, mm-hmm. and you have to have outlets and a strategy, mm-hmm. um, and mentors and coaches that uh, that you can rely on. And there's going to be people that rely on you. Mm-hmm. Um, to help them. And you, you can't we, talked turn- little, we talked a little bit earlier about what you saw in leadership that was negative in your 26 years in law enforcement. What did you see that really was positive and that really moved you in the right direction? Um, probably, uh, the, uh, and he's still chief there now, uh, Rick Beal, uh, probably one of the best leadership. Uh, and he's been there 12 years now. He's long long outlived the life expectancy. And uh, one of the best things he taught me from a leadership standpoint was to have a collaboration um, outlook that you can't have all the answers, nor do we expect you to have all the answers and solutions, and that you have to collaborate and delegate and participate with not just people in the department, but within the community. And, uh, and he put me in charge of, uh, 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 it's called the community initiative to re- uh, reduce gun violence in Dayton. Uh, gangs were, uh, literally killing us. Uh, 48% of all our homicides were gang related. And, um, he sent me to training with a guy named Dr. David Kennedy. And, uh, and that's where I learned this whole collaboration and some people call it thinking outside the box. I hate that I'm saying, uh, but the truth was the police department was about that much responsible for impacting, um, the violent crime in Dayton, that it, it wasn't a police problem we were responding to a community problem, but we were not involving the community in the solutions. Mm-hmm. 
We were not involving the court system. We were not involving social services. And once we put that all together, we ended up in two years, we reduced gang-related murders by 64%. And we kept it down. And uh, and then I retired a couple years later. But that was the best leadership um, tool that I ever learned from somebody, you know, firsthand was have that collaboration mindset because everybody has to be on the same message. And, and it was, um, it was incredible. I mean, 64% we reduced and it was incredible. Mm -hmm. And, and then the juvenile court judges said, Hey, we want to bring this into the juvenile court system. So I called Dr. Kennedy and he goes, you can't do it. I said, well, why not? He goes, because you don't have the same, stick, if you will, you know, the carrot and the stick kind of philosophy with juveniles. I said, okay, thanks. So I went back to the chief. I said, chief, Dr. Kennedy says it won't work. And he goes, you don't work for Dr. Kennedy. You work for me. He goes, make it work. So we sat down and we retooled what we were doing in the adult gang uh, environment, retooled it. Uh, with the message and with the judges and with the community support and social services, all that. And uh, in a period of two years, 120 juveniles had to go through this process. 80% of them had no recidivism. They didn't even skip school. Mm-hmm. And so that that's where I learned that all these things that are going on now, the defunding the police mantra and, and all this reaction to um, perceptions is none of the solutions are going to work if you don't have everybody at the table together and participating in the solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's the only way it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it, it, these places that are they're defunding, they're uh, taking away qualified immunity. There are all these punitive measures. Um, are only going to make the situation worse. I told you Sun Tzu. You know what Sun Tzu says about this very issue? Just hundreds of years ago, Sun Tzu said this. Your chances of success at bringing about change are greater if it's internalized, not enforced by uh, outside imposition of rules and regulations. Hmm. And so... And what we're facing right now is this outside uh, imposition of rules and regulations to change perceived behavior by law enforcement. It's not going to work because it's not being internalized. If you internalize that you're being punished, here's what you're going to do. And I don't, not just in law enforcement, in, in any career path, <clears throat> if you feel you're being unjustly, punitively treated, because of somebody else's misconduct, here's what you do. You retire on duty. You will now do the least amount of work to stay out of trouble. So you'll, so the boss will leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And, and you will, every cop can tell you the exact day and time they can retire. They know exactly the day and time that they can retire. And so however much time they have left with these punitive 
approaches, not collaboration, not involving, not having uh, police officers of all ranks get to participate in the strategy and the planning and the management of change, um, they're going to retire on duty. And on that day, at that time, they're going to walk in and they're going to, we called it the KMA letter, kiss my, you know what, uh, I'm out of here. And that is no way to spend the rest of your career working. And it's also no way to provide the best protection and service and leadership that the community so desperately needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so in, to looking at all these things, what is really, in your opinion, missing in law enforcement leadership today? Um, believe it or not, uh, law enforcement leadership doesn't really care. Uh, and, and let me explain what I mean by caring. But uh, they don't care, uh, it, particularly at that senior executive level in major departments, is uh, they can just go somewhere else. They, they know their life expectancy is three to five years, or they took this job as a stepping stone to go to a bigger, better, greener pastures. Um, and so when I say care, uh, this is what it means for me when I use the word care. You are willing to commit all resources and energy, C-A-R-E, commit all resources and energy. And I don't think in many, many, many departments, uh, there is that attitude of being willing to commit all resources and energy to solve the problems being faced internally or externally. Uh, smaller departments have a little bit more of an advantage um, than we were. You know, Dayton was a, at one time 520 man department. You get into the thousands and you get that disconnect and it becomes um, you're not a leader anymore. You're just a boss. Uh, and, 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 and you're um, trying to just keep the lid on on things until you can either retire or find something better. And, and why do you think it, that it, that lack of caring, as you described it, is is a factor? <clears throat> excuse me, is a fact of of leadership in law enforcement. Why is that? Part of it is um, the nature of the beast and the politics of uh, policing. Um, that yeah, you're the chief of police or you're the assistant chief of police, but in reality, you're not the policy maker. And so there's, it's almost the damned if you do, damned if you don't um, kind of chair you're sitting in and, and you get caught up in, um, in managing people instead of leading people. Uh, And I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like sports. If, if the, if the team really sucks, they fire the coach. They don't fire the players. Well, in reality, it's the execution of the policy, you know, uh, or the plays, if it's in sports or in law enforcement, it's the, um, it's the poor execution of um, the mission and vision and the behaviors and the policy that, that the community expects or that the elected officials expect. And so what do they do? They fire the chief uh, and they, 
and they try to go, well, well, we'll just bring in a better coach. The team will be better. Well, no, that's not how it works. And so what you have within the rank and file is um, they mimic what they see. And what they see is if you screw up, you're going to get fired. And so they'll, they'll quit doing um, anything that might be perceived as a screw up. And you're seeing that now, you know, on the, on the use of force, a lot, you know, we got to take away tasers. We have all these things we're going, well, why? Because now you're just going to force that officer to either go hands on and get hurt or turn a blind eye. And one of my favorite, I don't know who this belongs to, but one of my favorite quotes is if you turn a blind eye to something eventually you're going to be blind in both eyes. Hmm. And, and so I think from a leadership standpoint is that's what we see in policing is turning a blind eye to things that are internal, that we should be dealing. We should have early warning systems for um, problematic uh, uh, officers, but not, not so that we can go gotcha and uh, punish you, but because we care about you, you know, that, uh, you're, you're part of the, the family, if you will, we have invested a lot of time, a lot of money. You have a lot of knowledge, you have a lot of experience, but you're having a bad time for whatever reasons it is. And we, we just turn a blind eye to it hmm. and, and, or, well, let's transfer them to a position where, um, say they have uh, uses of forces that are questionable. Okay, well, let's take them off the street and let's make them a detective or let's put them in the property room. You haven't solved the problem. Mm-hmm. And their their behavior is a, is a reflection of something that's going on up here. And if you really care about your people, then you'll commit all resources and energy to help them. And maybe the help they need is you really shouldn't be in law enforcement anymore because uh, you could have some significant emotional, physical, psychological issues that, and it actually happened. Uh, and I'm not going to say any names, but there was, there was an officer that uh, I had to relieve of, of duty. He got specs and charges and, uh, and it turned out uh, he had a serious alcohol problem. And, um, and he got fired a, a year later, he stopped by the office, came in and he goes, Hey, I was a Lieutenant or no, I was, um, I was a Lieutenant at that time. Uh, he came into my office and he said, uh, Lieutenant, I just want to tell you getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to me. Hmm. And, uh, and it, and it was unfortunate that it took getting fired. But no, you know, there were cops that worked with him that knew the issues that he was having and they didn't say anything. Hmm. And and so that culture, I think you and I talked, I, I said, mm-hmm. and when we start talking about culture, remind me to define what I mean mm-hmm. by culture. <laughs> and here's the, uh, here's what culture means. The expected and accepted way of thinking, talking and acting within a group. That's the culture what is expected and accepted growing up as a kid, fifties and sixties, children are to be seen, not heard. Hmm. 
That was the culture. That was what was expected and accepted at family gatherings. Mm -hmm. Or if you went out to dinner, you know, whatever. You to be seen, not heard. So if you want to change the culture of an organization, what you have to do is change what is expected and accepted. And it's not just in law. This is part of the other problem with police community relationship is everybody. The chant is change. The police need to change their culture. That's true to an extent, but the community needs to change its culture as well. Hmm. What is expected and accepted way of thinking, talking and acting. I was on a homicide. There were 200 eyewitnesses, 200. They all stayed. Nobody left. It was a biker bar. 200 people saw what happened. It is still a cold case to this day. Wow. Not one person, not one person told us the truth hmm. or told us anything. And it's, that's the culture. Don't be a snitch. Don't talk to the police. Lie to the police. And then you get mad at the police when they don't solve a crime. Or you get mad at the police when crime goes up. And it's like, well, it's going up because we're not getting cooperation from people that know what happened. So we can catch the guy that's doing all this stuff. So that culture, and I think that's part of the thing that police leadership um, fails to do is develop those relationships and the connection with the community so that we can actually, frankly, talk with community leaders and go, hey, yeah, we have this crime problem in this particular neighborhood. We need help from you to get the community to cooperate with us. Um, and so it's it's just kind of this catch-22. It's not all the police's fault, and it's not all the community's fault, but nobody is going, we need to sit down and hash this out. Mm-hmm. How can someone who's a rank-and-file you know, patrol officer, they're, they're, you know, low on the totem pole. How can they lead up if they see where leadership needs to get to the place where they care that mm-hmm. fear, as you describe it, how can they, what can they do to kind of raise the bar to, to help their leaders get to where they need to be? Uh, <laughs> have the guts to uh, talk to the chief secretary and go, can I get on his calendar? And, uh, and have lunch with him or just come into the office and share um, that mindset that you have of, of leading from the bottom up, uh, leading by example, uh, and tell your chief what your mission and vision is for your career. I, I said earlier, you know, one of the things that we lack in, in law enforcement is succession planning um, and, and raising up um future positional leaders. You know, in, uh, in the NFL at one time, uh, there were, uh, of all the head coaches in the NFL, all of them came on, came up under the leadership of one of three other head coaches. Hmm. There was 39 head coaches that came up under one of three guys. Wow. And that's, and, and this is what, and this is why they came up under those three head coaches, because those head coaches, it wasn't about just winning. You know, 
Nobody under Vince Lombardi ever became a head coach in their own right. But he was, you know, he was considered a great coach because he won a lot of games. Mm -hmm. These three head coaches, part of their mission and vision was to raise up future head coaches, Mm -hmm. not just winning teams. Uh, You know, Lombardi said winning isn't uh, everything. It's the only thing. These three coaches, it wasn't the only thing. And I think in law enforcement, chiefs and deputy chiefs and senior ranking folks don't know what the vision is in their own ranks. So they're not mentoring and coaching up people. It's like you take a test and you score number one or however, however they select. It's all about performance, uh, written tests and interviews. And that's who gets picked. And they may be great at taking tests and really suck at leading people. (laughs) So you need to be, um, developing the the skills of the people you have so they can promote up or be that informal leader uh, on their squad or in their unit. Mm-hmm. And we don't we have those as, discussions. What should we as citizens do instead of, you know, chanting defund the police and all the crazy stuff that's going on? What can we do? What should we be doing to help our law enforcement get to the right spot? And you're asking the wrong guy uh, because that the question, no, it's the right question. You have to ask it of the right person. Mm-hmm. And so citizens, and you don't have to be the CEO, of some company, I mean, you can be mom and pop uh, is uh, ask that question of your police chief, ask that question of your mayor or your city manager. What can we do? to help the police department be more successful at doing their mission and vision. And, and, and don't say at doing their job because mm-hmm. to cop it, cops, um, th- th- if you give an attaboy to a police officer, give him the medal of valor, or, or I, I, just a compliment, call him a hero, you know, and the, you, you know, the officer so-and-so rushed into a burning house and, and did X, Y, or Z. And then they go to interview the officer. He will tell you, I was just doing my job. No, you weren't. This isn't your job. A job is just where you get a paycheck. This is your passion. You came into this career path and profession for very, very altruistic reasons. It's not a job to you. And I can prove it to you, and I do it with cops. When you ask a cop, if you could no longer be a police officer, what would you do? And if their response is, I don't know, you have a problem. Hmm. You have an officer who defines himself by what he's doing. And that tells me if he goes, I don't know, that means he's not thinking about life after retirement. He's not thinking about um healthy uh, lifestyle uh, things now so that he can enjoy life after retirement. He's not thinking about uh, how he can relieve stress. He's all, he's only thinking about doing more as a police officer. When they, excuse me, when they start signing up for uh, excessive overtime, uh, they're missing their kids uh, T-ball games because they're working overtime. uh, And, 
those are some, those are signals to you that um, they're getting consumed by their job. And I guarantee you, uh, it, they're going to spiral down. It, it's going to happen. They can't sustain that kind of stress in their life. And they're going to start spiraling downward. And that's part of the leadership the community can do is what can we do to help your officers um, be better uh, and not just being law enforcers. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the best programs we had uh, at the Dayton police department is we had the police athletic league. And and so we were able to get officers to coach, uh, you know, basketball teams or judo teams, or we had inline hockey and, uh, and we had some uh, officers that, would take uh, at-risk kids over to the University of Dayton uh, once a week uh, and have freshman um, college students tutor these kids in particular, you know, different subjects, help them do their homework. So we got officers doing things that have absolutely nothing to do with enforcing the law, and but it was building community relations. And so if you don't have a PAL program or some, it doesn't have to be PAL, but if there isn't a program within your uh, community involving the police in something that has absolutely nothing to do with being a cop, um, then start something. And that's something the community can take charge of, not the city, not the police department, but the community can be the, the leaders in um, engaging law enforcement in non-law enforcement ways. And that's how you build relationships and that's how you build uh, connections so that when there may be a critical incident that happens, the gut reaction of the community isn't to be accusatory, but it's to be, well, this, I know these officers, this doesn't, something doesn't sound right. Let's wait for all the facts. Uh, let's wait for the investigation. And it's all about, there is no destination. You never reach the finish line mm -hmm. in, in this, this it's like, it's like marriage, you know, that it's, it's constantly evolving and growing and there's always going to be unexpected things happen. There's going to be conflicts, but if you have developed the relationship, the communication, um, and the, the skills and the tools, um, to get through adversity, uh, in your married life, well, you can do the same thing in your work life. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I've been, we've been married 40 years, uh, and we've had a boatload of adversity. Uh, our youngest son died serving overseas in the military. And, but because we have built the foundation, uh, and for us, it's, it's our faith. That's what got us through, uh, you know, that, well, the same principles apply in the workforce and specifically in law enforcement or in, in the fire department. They're not immune to adversity and a lot of issues uh, and the PTSD. I mean, cops and firefighters see repeatedly things that no human being should ever have to witness in the first place. Mm -hmm. And not only do they see it, they are expected um, to uh, deal with it non-emotionally. They are expected to solve the problem, whatever that is. They have to go in and testify and repeat what they've seen and heard. And then 
they're expected to uh, keep that bottled up. Don't share that with your family. Don't, you know, don't scare your kids. Don't tell your wife about, or your husband about your day uh, because your day was nothing but, you know, death and destruction and, and the worst, we see the worst in humanity and you do that for 25 years. That is, it's going to warp you if you don't intentionally find ways to deal with it. You know, and going back to community relations, what you were talking about there, we had a, had a, a situation in our, in South Central Pennsylvania recently, soon after the George Floyd incident came to light, uh, where a group of African-American pastors got together with a group of uh, police officers and chiefs and other, uh, other deputies from the, from the area for a conversation. And some, something beautiful came out of that. And now they're meeting on a regular basis just to talk about those kind of relationships and how they can improve. Sometimes all we need to do is meet the other person. The person that we potentially have a conflict with, just sit down and talk with them, have a cup of coffee with them to get to know them. You begin to better understand someone else's perspective when, we, when you just have a simple conversation. And we, we did that in Dayton. It was facilitated uh, over a period of 12 weeks. And it was, it was a facilitated conversation. And it was uh, it was not all huggy lovey dovey you know uh we we were told by the facilitator who actually came from the department of justice civil rights unit uh is uh officers you can have to sit there and keep your mouth shut and we're going to let folks vent, and you're going to get your chance but they've never had to people in the community have never had the opportunity to sit down with decision makers, we were all commanders and, and up to the chief and be able to sit down and tell us how they really thought and felt. And sometimes what was driving their perceptions was was not accurate. And and we had to sit there and take it. And and it was brutal at times. The flip side though was when the facilitator, and again this over a period of twelve weeks, the facilitator is like, well, what would you like the community to know? And we could share our perceptions, like the homicide, 200 eyewitnesses. How do you expect us to solve a crime when when your community members that you have influence over won't cooperate? And so we had those very frank discussions, and and it did. Something very good came out of that, and, and part of what came out of that was the animosity um, towards the police department dropped dramatically. And then the first critical incident that we had after that process, then there, those folks that were engaged with us in that 12 week came forward and defended the police department to the community. Wait until everything is done and we can find out exactly what happened. And uh, we didn't have any riots. We didn't have any bad press. And we went through the process the way it should be done. So it's not all hugs and, and you know, uh, whatever, uh, balloons and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. it, it will be a brutal process. Mm -hmm. But when you come out the other end of it, it's worth what you had to go through to achieve that relationship and that trust. 
People go out, we don't trust the police. Well, and you know what cops say? We don't trust the community. Every, we have a saying, everybody lies to the police. You did it, you know who did it, or you're just supposed to lie to the police. So even when you do tell us something, we're going, mm, are they lying? You know, because we haven't built up the trust in the community and the community hasn't built up the trust with us. The only way you're going to do that, sit down mm-hmm. and force your intentionally address it. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes time and it, it will take, I mean, there'll be some tears shed. There'll be some really angry words exchanged, but keep in mind, if you're willing to commit all resources and energy, you can intentionally get through those brutal moments and it's worth it. Wow. Well, I think that's a, that's a great place to, to wrap up our discussion today. Pat, thank you so much for being on the show. How can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you? You have a number of books that you've authored. What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Um, uh, PJ Welsh LLC at gmail.com is my, uh, Gmail. And then, uh, pjwellsllc.com that you have the website up there. Uh, and, uh, I've written a couple books. One is, is specifically law enforcement related. Uh, the other one is, uh, faith-based warrior servant leader, uh, life behind the badge is the one you're showing there. Um, and the other one, uh, warrior servant leader life behind the cross, um, is, uh, kind of my faith journey. Um, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. It wasn't all uh, lovey-dovey. Um, going, to, uh, I was abandoned in an orphanage when I was three days old mm-hmm. in another country. Mm-hmm. And so I tell the kind of my journey started kind of rough and rocky. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Pat Welsh, uh, JD, uh, the initials JD. Um, and then uh, Facebook, I'm uh, also uh, Pat Welsh. Five. So yeah, I'll be reach sure out. to I'll be sure to link all that in uh, the comments and uh, in the show notes for the podcast. We'll we'll put those links on there so people can can link right to you. Next week I have a very interesting conversation with a active duty police officer. He's from New Jersey, Brad Woodby. He is uh, he's a SWAT officer. He has an amazing story of resilience of coming from the depths of despair to now leading uh, or, or teaching. He's a, new, he's a New Jersey State Master Resiliency Trainer and helping other officers deal with the stress of the job and, and learning how to grow and to become a, a better police officer. Next Friday, November 13th, Brad will be with us. Be sure to tune in for that. You have been watching First Responder Friday. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to our guests for being here. And we will see you again next week on First Responder Friday. For more information about PTSD 911 Movie, visit PTSD911Movie.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at PTSD 911 Movie.